So last week we finished the first unit of thought in chapter 2 of Ephesians as we considered the common experience of the Christian life. By way of reminder, Paul is building an argument toward showcasing the glory of the church. Chapter 2, he wants to demonstrate God's manifold wisdom in his design of the church, which functions also as an exhortation to those receiving these words to strive ever towards unity. Paul's desire for the Christians in Ephesus is that they would always be striving to honor the Lord by striving for unity, and that they would do that by considering how wonderful is his gift of the church. How does Paul get toward that argument? He begins, as you remember, in the first few verses of chapter 2 by showing us that we all have a common starting point. Our common starting point is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Without exception, we were all following the course of this world. What that means is on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening and all of the wonderful activities in between, not one of us is able to boast of a greater experience of God's grace or a starting point that was ahead of everyone else. No, everyone, without exception, was dead in their trespasses and sins. This was our common starting point prior to salvation in Christ. The next portion of Paul's argument as he progresses is to show, as you remember, that we've all experienced a common salvation. It is by grace that you have been saved. Without exception, you have all been saved by grace, raised up with Christ and seated with him, You all have enjoyed this same wonderful salvation. Again, properly considered within the broader context of Ephesians 2, this becomes an exhortation to conduct yourself in the local church with humility and grace and patience towards others, understanding that you're no better than anyone else. You've all been saved by grace, therefore... Honor the Lord as he has brought you into community with one another. And finally, last week's text, the third part of that unit of thought, we should all have the same Christian experience. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were, without exception, all of us saved by grace, and we have been created for good works. As you take in these realities, Paul says, No one is to boast. There is no place in the Christian life for setting yourself apart from the rest by virtue of boasting. You're not to disrupt the unity that exists amongst the body by boasting in what you have accomplished in your ministry. Because it's all a gift of God, a work of His grace. Rather, we're to race. We're to run towards those good works that God has prepared for us. And that should be a picture of every local church. Brothers and sisters in Christ linked arm in arm, striving, racing towards good works that the Lord has prepared for us 
to do to the praise of His glory. If you would go about your Christian life with that theology firmly rooted in your heart, there would be no disunity in the church. The church truly would be a picture of heaven to all those that would care to look in on us. They would see in this building something strangely, uniquely different from what they see in society. A group of people who in many respects would have no cause to be sharing their lives with one another were not it for the salvation that we have received in Christ. I've maybe shared before one of my favorite meditations on the church Perhaps I'm in a unique position for this meditation. I'm referring to the fact that I get to look at all of you each Sunday. One of my favorite meditations is just to ponder how, if it were not for the gospel, so many of us would have no cause to be sat in a room together. We would have no cause to be opening up our lives to one another, to be transparent and vulnerable with one another to be laboring in prayer for one another and serving one another, we would have no cause to conduct ourselves in this manner. I praise God for the diversity that exists in this local church and in most local churches, seeing that there are people here from all different walks of life that would have no cause to share of themselves with one another except for the gospel of our salvation. It is that that brings us together. And as you foster in your hearts a robust theology of the gospel, the kind of theology that Paul gives us in verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians 2, as you strive to make that theology the drumbeat of your daily life, understand that the fruit of that, the outworking of that, will only ever be unity in the local church. You will embrace intuitively one another in love. You will bear with one another. You will express patience towards one another and bear one another's burdens and be patient with the sins of others. There will be a unity that arises as you consider the gospel of your salvation. Paul is working towards verse 22 In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And at this point, verse 11, his argument now begins to focus specifically on the Gentiles. You'll remember the church in Ephesus was comprised of Gentiles and of Jews. Possibly, the majority would have been Gentiles, possibly by virtue of what we know to be true of the city of Ephesus. Paul speaks to the Gentiles, and he, in many senses, rehearses again the gospel. There isn't a sense that these few verses teach again the gospel that he has just given to us in verses 1 through 10. However, he approaches the reality of their salvation from a slightly different angle, He speaks about their previous exclusion from the people of God and now their inclusion to the people of God. He reminds the Gentiles that there was a time when they were excluded from the people of God. They had no part in the blessings 
that God bestows upon his people. Now they are fully fledged members of the people of God. How? By the blood of Christ. He gives to them again the truth of their salvation with an emphasis on their incorporation to the people of God in order that these Gentile believers would respond with the utmost gratitude. It is Paul's desire that the Gentiles in Ephesus would arrive at church every Sunday morning, look at one another and say, we are some of the most privileged people on planet Earth. That they would remember and call to mind their previous exclusion that they would now bask in the glory of their inclusion and respond in praise. And the contours of that argument are absolutely identical to our reality this evening. It is no different for us. Here we are, in large measure, a Gentile church. And the crux of Paul's argument is not a matter of time. As we get into the details of this text, the point Paul is making is not predominantly one of when you lived in redemptive history. The fact is, these Gentiles were excluded from the Old Testament people of God, Israel. They're now included in the New Testament people of God, the church, and the mechanism by which they've been brought in is the blood of Christ. It is absolutely no different for us here this evening. The only reason you have membership to the church is because of the blood of Christ. The only reason you enjoy the privileges of being counted amongst God's people is because of the blood of Christ. And so I pray that this evening we would call to mind afresh our previous exclusion, our present-day inclusion, so that we would respond in praise. Now, we'll divide the text into two halves. The first, thinking about calling to mind the reality that once we were far off. And then, as Paul turns the corner in verse 13, will focus on the truth that now, by the blood of Christ, we have been brought near. Beginning with the truth that we were once far off, Paul says, therefore, you can pause there, therefore, Paul writes that word in an emphatic way, leaning upon all that he's just said in verses 1 through 10. With the gospel theology in view, verses 1 through 10, these things are also true. What Paul is about to give us is truths that are rooted in the theology of the gospel that he's just rehearsed. Therefore, and then notice Paul issues an imperative. Therefore, he says, remember. This is the imperative in this passage. If there is a command to take away this evening, it is this one. Remember. Paul instructs the believers in the church to call to mind what? That they were once excluded from the people of God. We'll speak about the function that remembering has in the Christian life in just a few minutes. 
Before that, let's examine exactly how Paul describes their exclusion. He says, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, that's a very long and awkward description. Why did Paul feel bound to describe them in that way? Perhaps the first thing to note is Paul is not, in any sense, trying to be derogatory. He is not, in any sense, trying to be derogatory. Rather, he is simply stating a matter of fact, but specifically from the perspective of an Old Testament Jew. Paul is describing things here at a very human level from the perspective of an Old Testament Jew, the Israelites would look upon the Gentiles. They would call them Gentiles in the flesh because they had not received the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. They were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. And who was doing the calling, the labeling? It was the circumcision, the Jews, the Israelites, who had received the sign of the covenant. But even that circumcision was made by flesh, in the flesh, by hands. It was a human act. And so, from a human perspective, Paul is saying, this is the hard, cold reality of your previous exclusion from the people of God. He's referring to the Old Testament people of God, the nation of Israel. What then Paul does is to explain that by virtue of their exclusion, there were at least five major disadvantages. A few things to note. First of all, as Paul lists these disadvantages to exclusion, he is not trying to pass any comment on the behavior of the Israelites in the Old Testament. He is not making a comment as to the Israelites' faithfulness, or more to the point, their unfaithfulness. A cursory reading of the Old Testament will demonstrate that the Old Testament people of God were not faithful to the blessings that they had received. Paul does not seek to give a commentary on that aspect of their life. Nor... And this is so important, nor is Paul trying in these few verses to comment on the reality that even though the Old Testament people of God was marked by virtue of a geographic border, Israel, you still had to put faith in God's promises in order to be saved. This is one of the complexities of the Old Testament people of God. It was defined as a nation, Israel. You were born into it. There you are, you find yourself to be a Jewish child. I'm part of the Old Testament people of God. Nevertheless, it was still expected of you to put real faith in the promises of God, not least the promises of a deliverer, in order to be made right with him. That's a reality of the Old Testament people of God to which Paul does not speak in these few verses. He is simply highlighting the fact that there was an Old Testament people of God. 
He's simply highlighting the fact of their existence. And so, rightly considered, as you think through Paul's argument, you understand the doctrine that is underpinning it all is the doctrine of election. Now, we have spoken and thought often about the doctrine of election as we've worked through Ephesians chapter 1. There, we thought about election on an individual level as it relates to saving faith in Christ. That same doctrine of election also pertains on a corporate level to the Old Testament people of God. God, in His wisdom, chose for Himself a nation, and He did not choose for Himself the other nations. That's Old Testament theology of election. He chose for Himself Israel, and He did not choose for Himself the other nations. And Paul is trying to highlight to the Gentiles this reality, and by implication, their exclusion. Now, what are the disadvantages to being excluded from that people of God? Number one, verse 12, you are separated from Christ. The first disadvantage that Paul lists to being excluded from that Old Testament people of God, Israel, is that you are separated from Christ. At this point, you might be saying, wasn't everybody separated from Christ until they put their faith in Him? That is not what Paul is referring to here. Rather, he is saying the Old Testament people of God, as faithless as they were, nevertheless had what we call a messianic hope. The Old Testament people of God had a messianic hope. The word Christ there is the Greek word for Messiah. The Old Testament people of God had built into their cultural thinking the anticipation of a deliverer, a ruler, a king who would come and act on their behalf. If you were not in that people of God, but were in the nations, you did not have a messianic hope. You did not have built into your sacred book or into your collective thinking the anticipation of a ruler sent by God to act on your behalf. It was only Israel that had this messianic hope. Second disadvantage, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. It's a wonderful word, commonwealth. (laughs) Paul is referring there, in a broad sense, to the law and the ordinances that God gifted to Israel by which they would flourish in relationship with Him. They were outside of the Old Testament law. They were outside of that law that was to guide Israel in a way of living. You see, so often we look at the Old Testament law and we think of it incorrectly. We read all those chapters in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, or perhaps we don't read them because we look at them and think them to be so burdensome. I can't even muster the energy to read them. How did the Israelites live by them? Actually, when we look at those chapters, we should see God's good and perfect law given as a gift to His Old Testament people by which they would flourish in so much as they submitted to them, they would flourish in relationship with God in the land. 
It was his goodness to them that he gave them a law. And if you were not in Israel, if you were in the nations, you did not have that law. Now, you most likely had a law. You can study the laws of these other nations. Occasionally, those laws of the other nations run parallel to Israel's laws. Very occasionally, we find laws that run so close to the Torah but most often they run contrary to it. The nations conducted themselves in a way that was abhorrent in the sight of God and which did not foster a relationship with Him, but only led to their destruction. And Paul is reminding the Gentiles, you were not chosen to be part of that nation, Israel, and so you were part of the nations that followed a different law. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Third disadvantage of being excluded, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. It was Israel that had received these covenants throughout redemptive history from God. The first covenant being the Noahic covenant, a universal covenant, but thereafter God works so as to give Abraham the Abrahamic covenant which the Israelites for generations and generations would appeal to and cling on to, and even do today. The Abrahamic covenant was their covenant. It was the line of Abraham that received these promises, not the Gentiles. And then came the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that you read given at Sinai. Predominantly, as we think of it, the giving of the law. Again, it is a good covenant. God entering into a relationship with his people, promising to lead them and to cause them to flourish in so much as they would obey him. Then we move on and we see the Davidic covenant given to David the king, a promise that there would always be a man on David's throne. It's the kingly covenant. And it's clasped onto by the Israelites because they understand God is promising them as a nation that they would forever have a king ruling over them. And so this system of covenants was dear to the hearts of the Israelites. And if you were not part of this Old Testament people of God, you had nothing to do with these covenants. You were strangers to them. They made no sense to you because they were not promises given primarily to you. The fourth disadvantage to being excluded, very simply, Paul says, you had no hope. Speaking here, most likely, about the eschatological hope of the Israelites, you read the Old Testament, especially the prophets, And you see over and over again how these men were raised up by God so as to speak the truth, not only foretelling, but foretelling. Here's the state of play today. Here's how it looks. You're disobeying God. But then notice the prophets reach forward by God's Spirit. They look ahead and they say, but there is a glorious day coming. There is a final salvation promised for you, Israel. They held on to what we might call today a blessed hope, a sense of God dealing well with them in the future. Even as they went into exile, as they, they came to the sober recognition that this is the Lord's hand of judgment upon us. Even then they held on to those scriptures and they understood, but there is a day coming when God has promised that he will deal well with us. 
If you were not part of that people of God, if you were the Gentiles, you had no hope. No such promises had been issued to you. And then finally, the fifth disadvantage of being excluded from God's chosen nation is that you were without God in the world. Just one word in the original language, it's the same word that gives rise to our word today, atheist. You were without God, you were having no God, that is the real living God in the world. You had no relationship with Him. No knowledge of Him. The best that you could muster was a carved idol. The best that you could muster was to lean upon some conception of a deity. And oftentimes it was so awry that you you held on to many deities and you constantly tried to appease them and your life was miserable. You had no knowledge of the one true God in this world. Paul is laboring their disadvantages, if we can say it like that. Such an understatement to be excluded from the Old Testament people of God was to lead a miserable life. If you could have the spiritual awareness in the Old Testament as a Gentile to look in on Israel, if you could have the spiritual awareness to look in on Israel, notwithstanding their disobedience, without making any comment on their disobedience, nevertheless, you could look at the promises that God had given them, the scriptures that he had given them, and you could see that they, by virtue of God's election of them, were a privileged nation. And you were not included. You are not part of that nation. And Paul says to the Gentiles, remember. I want you to call to mind your exclusion from the Old Testament people of God. I want you to remember and to think upon the reality of your heritage, where you have come from. I want you with all sobriety to bring to mind that you are Gentiles in the flesh excluded from God's chosen people. Again, it is no different for us here this evening. It is not an issue of time. The argument Paul is making is not predicated upon time. It is not the case that because we sit here now in this year, thousands of years away from Old Testament realities, that this argument now falls apart. That is not the case. The argument still stands. It's not a matter of time. It's a matter of election. And as Gentiles, in the economy of Old Testament theology, we were not chosen. Or, to render it on an individualistic level, there was a time when you were not in Christ. And Paul commands us to think upon that reality. Specifically, he commands us to remember not simply that we were not in Christ, but by virtue of not being in Christ, we weren't part of the church. There was a time when you weren't in Christ and therefore you weren't in the church and you did not enjoy the blessings 
that God's New Testament people enjoy. You are completely alienated from that sphere of blessing. Paul does not want us to grow complacent with our salvation. The need, the very need to issue this imperative should be instructive for us. The very fact that God has ordained that in His Word it would be written, remember, should be instructive for us, not least by reminding us that we are prone to forget. You see, the way it works is that when a problem is solved, the fact of the problem tends to fade in our minds. Whenever a problem is fixed, the fact that the problem ever existed tends to fade in our minds. For hundreds and hundreds of years, humanity was struggling to survive. We didn't know how to feed ourselves, how to survive as a human race. And then the Industrial Revolution happened, and now food is not in a shortage, at least not in our nation. And so we forget the fact that the problem exists. We forget that once this was an issue, and so we quabble over small and insignificant things because the problem, the fact of the problem, has faded. In the same way, if we do not call to mind our once-upon-a-time exclusion from the people of God, we will lose sight of the fact that the problem did exist, and by implication, we will stop being grateful. Paul desires that we would all, with one voice, express our gratitude to God for our salvation in Christ and now our inclusion into the people of God. The only means by which we might be steadfast in giving thanks to the Father is to regularly call to mind where we once were. This is why, very practically, we Christians often rehearse our testimonies of salvation. There is a real spiritual work happening when someone amongst us tells us from where they have come and what Christ has done in their life and the reality that today they stand forgiven. There is a mutual encouragement and edification of the saints when we hear afresh somebody's testimony of salvation because it includes the fact that once they were far off. And we are corporately reminded that that was true of every single person who today is in Christ. And as we're reminded of those realities, those sobering realities, you cannot respond but to praise God afresh for your salvation in His Son. And so Paul desires that every single Gentile would arrive at church in Ephesus each Sunday and look at one another and say, we are amongst the most privileged people on the face of the planet. God desires the same for us, that we would come through those doors each Sunday morning and evening and look at one another and say, we are blessed beyond measure. Not bickering about insignificant things. Not allowing insignificant issues to get in the way of our unity. Not allowing insignificant details to rob us of giving praise to God not allowing the fact of the issue to fade in our memory. 
And so how do we get there? We remember that once we were far off. And with that remembrance ever present in our hearts and our minds, we then turn to the reality of verse 13. But now, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, there's the domain of our new existence. We've been brought into Christ. This is Paul's favorite theological motif. In Christ, through Christ, by Christ. This is how we live our lives. We can't live apart from Christ. We are in Christ Jesus. He is bringing to view the whole gospel of our salvation with these three words. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. Now Paul says in shorthand the opposite of what he has said in a rather lengthy manner in verses 11 and 12. So in verse 13, he simply says, you have been brought near. I take that to be launching an umbrella over all of the disadvantages in verse 12 and saying, you now have them. Again, it's important to remind ourselves, Paul is not trying right now to give a fully-fledged theology of the differences between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. Paul is not trying here to say the Old Testament people of God was Israel, the New Testament people of God is the church, there are some similarities, there are some differences, there are nuances, that's not the point of his argument. He's saying there is a people of God. You were once outside of them, And now you're inside. And so, you now are no longer separated from Christ. You now have a messianic hope. Maybe you don't phrase it that way, and that's entirely fine. The point is, you now have an anticipation that your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come again. Your messianic hope is even stronger than Old Testament Israel would have had because you have seen that he has come once. You have for you the testimony recorded four times over that Jesus came and walked on this earth and performed miracles and gave good teachings and your messianic hope is now oriented towards his second coming. You now have a hope in Christ. Now, You are not alienated from God's people, but you are in there receiving the good instruction that God has given to the church. Whereas the Old Testament law was not given to you, the New Testament law has been given to you. We were thinking about these realities this morning. God has been gracious to you in giving the many, many commands that you find within your New Testament. It is not a burden for you. It is good and life-giving to feast upon the imperatives found in the New Testament, given to the church, given to you, by which you would obey, because therein you will flourish in your relationship with God. Insomuch as you are now in the people of God, you have 
an ordering system called the commands of God by which you can flourish. Not only that, but you are no longer strangers to the covenants of promise. You are participants in the new covenant. The first Sunday of every month, we take of communion to memorialize, to commemorate Jesus' death on the cross and to look forward to his second coming. And it's all oriented around what he called the new covenant. And the new covenant is the capstone to the covenantal system. The covenants are working towards throughout redemptive history, the new covenant. It was given originally to Israel, spoken to Israel. They have yet to partake of it. But what a privileged position we find ourselves in this evening that God has allowed us to enter into new covenant realities. Not least sins forgiven, a new heart, a love for His law. The covenants are no longer foreign to us, but the new covenant is real. It is no longer true that you have no hope. But as we have already rehearsed this evening, we have a blessed hope. This has been the mainstay of the Christian faith for so many centuries. So often throughout church history, in large measure because of how persecuted the church has been, the church has found nothing else to do but to look forward and to long for the return of Christ. May we never grow complacent with our blessed hope, but may we always set our minds onto the reality that Christ is coming again to rule and to reign on this earth. He will come for you and you will reign with Him and you will enter into the new heavens and the new earth with Him and there you will spend all eternity. We now have a hope. And it is no longer true that we are without God in this world. God has not permitted us to be without Him. He has not permitted our hearts to be atheistic in their orientation, but we have a God. The one true God. You know Him. You love Him and you know of His love for you. And what is more, you have been adopted by him such that you may call him your heavenly father. This is what it means when Paul says, you have been brought near. You have been brought near. How were you brought near? You were brought near by the blood of Christ. It is by the blood of Christ that you sit here this evening enjoying the privileges of being part of God's people. It is only by the blood. It is nothing less. It could not have been anything less. The Old Testament Scriptures teach us that sin demands to be atoned for by blood. And great was your sin. And you could not operate apart from sin. So you couldn't fix the problem. You see the conundrum that God gives us in His Old Testament. Sin must be atoned for by blood, but it can't be your blood. Because your blood is soaked with your sin. 
So all you would ever do is bring more sin to the equation. There must be a blood that comes from outside of us. It has to be the blood of Christ that brings us near. And it could not be any more. It could not be any less, but it could not be any more. Meaning, it cannot be the blood of Christ and your good efforts that bring you near. It cannot be the blood of Christ and your good intentions that bring you near. It cannot be the blood of Christ and your deep yearnings for God to be part of His people that bring you near. Because your efforts, your intentions, only ever ran contrary to God's will. And so rightly we sing, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. As you remember where you once were, as you call to mind often and ask your brothers and sisters in Christ of their previous exclusion, as you are faithful to remember your previous alienation from the people of God, would you also think often upon the blood of Christ? The world thinks we're a strange people to obsess so much about blood. But it is a precious blood. When Jesus stood trial, they flogged him. And his blood flowed from his back. They pushed a crown of thorns into his head and blood flowed down his face. He was made to carry his cross to the place of his execution and more blood flowed down his back. And then they drove nails through his hands and his feet and oh, did his blood flow. And then when his heart stopped beating, they thrust a spear into his side. And more blood issued forth, and with his blood, with every precious drop of his blood, he was purchasing for you a place amongst the people of God. You maybe haven't often, if ever, connected the blood of Jesus with your position in the church. Again, we so often think about the blood of Jesus rendered for us in an individual sense, and that's not wrong. But expand your estimation of your salvation this evening. Take in more of the gospel this evening. Understand that the blood of Christ flowed, not merely so that you individually would be made right with God, but so that you would be part of a people. A people of God that enjoy rich, rich privileges that the world does not have access to because the blood of Jesus has not been rendered effective for them. 
And as you meditate on your previous exclusion and on your present inclusion, let your heart respond in praise. Praise as you sing. Praise as you proclaim your testimony. Praise as you serve in the church. Praise as you labor to serve one another. Praise as you deny yourself so as to be a blessing to someone else in the church. All of these are acts of praise rendered in response to a proper estimation of your previous exclusion and your present day inclusion. May this church be one that is praising God in the fullest sense because we are taking in the reality and the riches of the blood of Christ that has been shed for us and brought us near. Now in a few minutes, as we close, we will sing of the blood of Christ. A few weeks ago, we sung for the first time a song, Are You Washed in the Blood? And I said to Joel, I want to sing this song more frequently in our church. Sing it again this evening. As you'll remember, the song begins by posing a question. Are you washed? And I want you to consider whether you have been washed. If you are here this evening never having put your faith in Christ, you haven't been washed. There is a sense in which you can participate in the activities of this church, and there is a sense to some degree in which you can participate in the life of this church, but you do not presently have access to the privileges of the people of God. As we sing, you'll then notice that the song shifts from asking a question to issuing an imperative. Come and be washed. Be washed in the blood of the Lamb. If you've never put your faith in Christ, His blood is available for you this evening. Accept his life and death as a payment on your behalf and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And as you're washed, you step into the people of God, brought near by his blood, enjoying rich privileges. Let's pray now in response. Father, as we think upon these details, we are again astounded at your grace towards us. We were once far off, alienated from the people of God. Now by the blood of Christ, by his blood alone, we have been brought near. We praise you, Father, for being brought near by the blood of Christ. The promises 
are now ours in Christ. The blessings are ours in Christ. We belong to your people, the church. May our hearts respond in praise as we think upon the precious blood of your Son. In his name, amen.